Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. This past week, a couple of days ago, <laughs> one year anniversary of the pandemic. Wow. One year ago, actually, one year ago, uh, and one year and maybe two or three days ago, the world stopped on its axis. Oh. I know. Isn't that hard to believe? It seems like eternity and yesterday all at the same time. It it feels like I'm older than one year. You know, it feels like I've got like smoker's soul or something. It's like, you know, I mean, you know, you age because of something you've done. The stress and the anxiety. Yeah. It's like my gray hairs have turned gray. (laughs) They've doubled down. Yeah. You, You know, when I moved here seven years ago, I didn't have gray hair. I saw I saw pictures of you before. I mean, not you as here. gray, I should say. I mean, you looked like you look like squeaky. You, uh, squeaky, you like eighteen years old or oh, something. Yeah. I mean, just. Well, hey, today we're joined by a friend of mine, Adam Hamilton. Adam is a uh, pastor of Church of the Resurrection mm. in Leewood, Kansas, which is suburb of Kansas City. They have multiple campuses, kind of like we do, different campuses um, up there around Kansas City. Uh, church of the Resurrection is the largest United Methodist Church in the United States and probably one of the biggest ones in the world. Uh, Adam is the founder of the church, started the church. Wow. Yeah, Uh, with like 12 people in his living room uh, a long, long time ago. I don't know exactly how many years, but it's 20 plus, 30 years, almost 30 years ago at least. But I've just found him to be a remarkable guy as I've gotten to know him better. Um, He's wildly, insanely intelligent. I mean, he's written... So many books I've lost count, but he he's just got a heart about him. And the church, the what what Church of the Resurrection is really built upon. If you go in their church and you see up on the wall, their mission statement is about reaching non-churched uh, or unchurched and nominally uh, nominally re- religious Christians or people that are nominally Christian or unchurched. And so they've been very intentional about evangelism and reaching people, which is why I think they've done so well. And I think it's a lesson to help us. So I'm looking forward to the conversation mm-hmm. of just about a lot of different things uh, with him because he brings a unique way of yeah. seeing things. Yeah, yeah. I think both he and you are, in, in, are, are cut out of similar costs and are speaking a similar message to the life of the church uh, in the moment that we're in in history. So it's, it's great. All right. Oh, hey, look. can you guys see me? Hear me? Now I see you. Where'd you have oh, to go right. next door? Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I actually, I'm down at the lake and I, uh, I, I was supposed to be doing this on somebody else's T1 line. <clears throat> we have terrible satellite access down here. So I went in to do at their house, but the, uh, uh, smoke alarms were chirping and I can't get the ladder out to get up to where the, uh, we're going to change I'm sitting outside now. So this, to- this is what I was, this is what I brought up in honor of your technical difficulties. Ooh. I love it. <laughs> you've got mail. Oh, it says you've got mail at the end. <laughs> Does it? Hold on, yeah. Do you have to wait 10 hours to get No, no, this is not the 10-hour <laughs> one. But this oh, is like man. Adam Hamilton dial up. <laughs> exactly. I used to do that. So did you. I know. We all did. Yes. We oh, remember man, those days. Down here at the lake. We remember those oh, yeah. days. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. I'm glad to see you're in a, a nice, relaxing place. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a view from here. My house is just around the corner, but uh, this is where I come to write, and this is kind of the view from uh, from where I'm where I'm wow. sitting. Wow, 
So, yeah, we uh, 55 mile marker, Lake of the Ozarks. Is that, that's in Kansas, right? Or it's in Missouri, central Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. Missouri's South deep. central Missouri. South central. Yeah. How far away is it from your house? It's about two hours. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, about two hours and 15 minutes, actually. I just drove it this morning and yeah, so it's, it's, you know, I wish it was a little closer, but it's not too bad. Not no, too it's bad. beautiful. Yeah, we uh, I we started coming down here about 15 years ago. We have a friend who has a house here, and they just set up a room for us. One of our parishioners and friends, and I've written almost all of my books from down here at the lake. Outline sermons here, come just to walk and pray. And during COVID, this has been one of the great things is we've been able to you know get down here and and spend a lot more time here. <laughs> I have an office set up here, and but the internet stinks except this one house. This is uh, this house belongs to another. <laughs> friend of ours and they've got a they've got microwave access across the lake to a t1 line and uh anyway so good to have a chance to That's be awesome. with you today Thanks to the so you're poaching internet right now is that right i am i have their permission but i am poaching their internet that's awesome well adam i don't know if you've ever met matt russell before or matt if you've ever met adam matt's on staff he's one of our executive pastors here and kind of he's a, one of our creatives and gets things done and he just does Matt Russell things, which we love. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So what's been your favorite thing about the pandemic? <laughs> you know, I love that. Not yeah, a question you get every day. Out. What yeah, are you going to miss most about the pandemic, Adam? <laughs> what are you going to miss most? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, obviously for all of us, we're, and you know, you've probably done this sermon series already, January or uh, Easter, right after Easter, we're doing three weeks on this just to talk about what do we learn, what's changed, and uh, what's our hope for the future. And, you know, we've had a lot of, I mean, obviously there's a lot of pain and anytime you talk about the good things, you always feel a little guilty talking about that because you know people, you have them in your congregation. I have 30 plus families who lost a loved one during this period of time. People lost their jobs, lost their businesses. Um, but behind all of that, there were also some good things too. So, you know, for me, my favorite thing was I got to spend more time with LaVon than I have in our entire married life. We've been married almost 40 years and, um, you know, all of my speaking engagements canceled, all the meetings I had in the evenings outside of, you know, uh, resurrection canceled the, the, um, opportunity to, you know, we came down here to the lake and on, you know, uh, we record our services on Friday. So Saturday, I had Saturdays off for the first time in 30 years. I had uh, Sundays. I would work part of the day on Sunday and obviously worship, but we worshiped together sitting on the couch in front of the TV with our online. And it's just been, that's been just really magnificent. We've had, I think we feel both more in love with each other, closer to each other than we felt uh, in our entire marriage. And we had a pretty good marriage going into this, but I think it strengthened our marriage. It was, it was really great. How about you guys? That's great. What, what was it I said recently? It's like the pandemic has, has separated you from the people you really want to be with, and it's forced you to stay with the people you really don't want to be with. <laughs> oh, man. I hope your wife's not listening no, to this. I don't mean my wife. I was thinking more of all the parents who have teenagers. That's been the one where they're like, they are yeah, so ready. The they're like, go get COVID. Go get it. Stay at your friend's house. No, it's, it's, yep. I think that's been uh, fascinating. How about you, Matt? What's been your. Yeah, I, I would resonate with that one. I think it's given 
my family more kind of intense time together. Um, and I also think it's given us a chance to really imagine a different future as well. Imagine what, what could happen out of this. And so I think those are the two things I've really enjoyed benefited from. Yeah. I I think the whole journey of pandemic is, is so surreal because you start out and you think it's going to be a month or two months or three months. And so I think just mental health wise and like, trauma and everything else just going through just learning a lot about yourself and a lot about ministry and people and yeah just everything i mean i think it's been it's it, it cracks you open it's certainly the seed falling into the soil and that's right and breaks open the husk so that's why I've, i'm i'm applying for a therapist a spiritual director <laughs> and i bought a peloton <clears throat> the trinity the, t- of the holy trinity of my of my mental health yeah what are you adam i mean when we think about i mean we i, I don't know there's a there's a part of me that thinks okay when the church when you get to normalcy whatever that is on the other side and when that happens i don't know do we just go back to the way things were some people say no that's not going to happen it shouldn't happen do people come back to church? Uh, I know now in Texas, 15% of people have had at least one shot. So we're still not seeing crowds like we did before. I don't think any church is. And you have to wonder, do some people not come back? And, and what does that look like? How does the church engage in the world, not around a one hour on Sunday morning? Or we'll always have that, but I don't know. Well, you, you, your church has done a lot with a non-Christian and nominally Christian there's more of that in the world than there ever has been before. And I just wonder, what does it look like on the other side of this, do you think, as you're talking about it? Well, like a lot of people have said, you know, this sped up the process of change by about a decade in one year. And so, you know, we're, I mean, it's been exciting that we've seen so many new people coming and joining us for worship. We tried to expand the number of opportunities. I'm sure you all did the same thing to connect with people through the week. So, you know, Tuesday nights, I do a a 30 minute Vespers uh, on Facebook live, you know, where I just share some things from scripture and pray with people. And, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have a thousand people who will join us on Tuesday nights for this 30 minute time. You know, it's, and from around the world, they talking to each other on the screen, you know, on Facebook while I'm sharing with them. And, and it's become sort of a, I mean, it's just an interesting thing. We do, you know, devotions every morning on Facebook live. And in the evenings we use, you know, we do different things each night and, so we're connecting with tons of people, but in different ways than we had before. And, you know, if I, if I'd announced a Bible study at the church, I wouldn't have got a thousand people showed up for that or, mm. <clears throat> but somehow during this time it, it worked. And then, uh, you know, online, we went on television during this time. we never, I was against the idea and, uh, a TV station offered us TV time, you know, as the, as the pandemic began just for a few weeks, right up to Easter. And all of a sudden we saw these people who weren't joining us online before. I always thought, well, gosh, you know, we're online. Why do they need to have, you know, why do we need to spend the money for TV? And, and yet, you know, we find people who are in prison who are joining us. We find people who are in hospitals who wouldn't go online. We find people who are, who are truly, you know, atheist agnostics who said, you know, I, I was just flipping to the channels or my friends told me to go to channel 38 and I decided I would try it and who would never have logged into cor.org to, to get online. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like it's that much harder, but it's, um, and so, you know, our, our worship potential, like you guys, we've just gone crazy. We've got all these new people coming. And, uh, and so the question you asked is the right one. How, how many of our pre COVID regular worshipers will come back in person? And, you know, so we started back last Sunday. Are you guys back already? We've been back since September. Okay. Well, we went back in October and then we, we, uh, 
stopped in November when the numbers shot up here in Kansas City. And then uh, we you know, just started back last Sunday. We had about 15% of our pre-COVID number uh, in in-person worship at all of our campuses. It was pretty similar at almost all our campuses. The smallest campus had the highest percentage of people back. We had about 30% of our smallest campus. And, um, and so, you know, that was spring break. It was cold and rainy. It was daylight savings time. I don't know what that'll mean next week or the week after that, but I'm thinking if we're back to 25% after Easter, uh, pre-COVID, I'm going to be pretty happy with that to begin with. And we're hoping we get to 50% within uh, six months. And, I don't, it'll be interesting to see you've given people a whole year of being, of worshiping online at home. And some people can't wait to get back. And a lot of other people are like, I've kind of gotten used to this, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, so I don't know. I'm a little nervous about that. You know, I, I think that there's something and the people who are there Sunday, you know, it's not the same when you're online versus being in the room, right. singing with people, connecting with people. But, uh, but I think we're gonna have to do some work to have people say, you know what? I actually want to go be back in person with other people. And especially in larger churches, I think in small churches, there's more of a sense of community. You know, everybody in your church, if you're a church of 60 or 100 people. And so, of course, you want to be back with them. But when you're in a church, you know, of you guys' size or our size, you find, yeah, I know, I know 50 people in my church, but I, I don't know the other 9,950 who are there on a given Sunday. And uh, so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. So it's really awesome. A lot of great things that we've been able to use new technology or use technology to reach people in new ways. And I think when it comes to non-religious people, they're used to doing everything online when they want to at the time they want. So, you know, YouTube, we've, we've been playing at YouTube a little bit, but the last uh, few weeks we began to emphasize it more. And, you know, we went from 300 to a thousand people joining us on YouTube on a weekend. Uh, and not just the, you know, people who check it out for five seconds, but I mean, people are actually worshiping with us. I think people like being able to have it on demand when they want it and not having to show up at a particular time. And so I think we got to, you know, we've, we got some work to do to get people yeah. back in. But I think um, the, I think the, the flip side of that is the pandemic, uh, not just for church people, but I think particularly unchurched folks or nominally church folks, this whole thing is like broken open the need for community, for connection, so I'm wondering, I heard someone mention something about it. The church going out of the pandemic or exiting out is going to have to be high tech, but also high touch. Yeah. And I think like one of the things we've been brainstorming yeah. is, you know, we always used to do like second, we call it second Sunday chicken or second Sunday lunch where people stay. And we're like, well, why don't we just do that second Sunday picnic, you know, outside people just need something to get together yeah. and gather yeah. with other people, but they're still tentative. And I was with my mom couple of weeks, uh, two weeks, three weeks ago in Georgia. And she got her shots. The first time I've seen her since like December of 2019. And we went to a restaurant. And she was so nervous. I've shared this story here. She was so nervous and it made sense. I didn't think about it, but she'd been told for a year, stay in your house. Don't get around other people. You have high risk, you know, till you get your shot. She's like, you don't just turn that off. Right. And I think a lot, there's a whole cultural uh, grieving, fear, anxiety that yeah. has to get the, the, the rust knocked off of it before yeah. we see that. So I, I, interesting to hear you say six months to 50%. We're at about 25, 30%. We're about 30%, but it's still small crowds. And yeah. we, we don't have the same number of services. We've consolidated them. We still have a lot of people that are just doing it online. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be the trend for a while. And if you think about it, <coughs> excuse me. If you think about it, the um, 
you know, if you see people sitting next to each other, like shoulder to shoulder, which is how people worship at resurrection, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, especially in our, you know, main seating area, people are shoulder to shoulder. I don't want to sit shoulder to shoulder with people I don't know right now. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've had COVID. I've not had the vaccine yet, but I'm not, I'm not ready to sit shoulder to shoulder with people. So I think it's going to be a while. I think we, you know, we think about restaurants and at least in Kansas City, you know, if you're sitting at a restaurant and we went for the first time last night back to a restaurant since COVID. Wow. So we've taken out, we've taken carry out, but we hadn't been, you know, eating inside one yet. And we did last night, but we were in a little room, you know, and we were 20 feet away from the next people in, uh, in the restaurant. So I do think it's, I think your mom's right. It's going to be a while for people to be, there's a sort of trauma or a sort of uh, fear that we've, you know, that we've rightly cultivated. Like, you got to be careful about that. You got to be careful about that. That leads us to say, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm ready yet. I think that's where a lot of people are going to be for a while. Do you think the identity of the church changes? Do you think we change the way we see how we do what we do? I mean, do we need to go through an identity shift? That's another good question. I, you know, I think for us, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think for our congregation, we've spent a lot of time over the last year thinking about who are we and why are we doing what we're doing. And we've had not only COVID, you know, which has led us to be, you know, to really focus on how do we meet the needs of the community. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things that happened, I think, in a lot of churches is, you know, if you were paying attention, there were so many needs in your community around you and you began saying, okay, what can we do? How do we roll up our sleeves and get involved? So, you know, like you guys and so many other churches, we gave more food away than we've ever given away. We were involved in trying to encourage first responders. We were out working with the schools. We were, you know, constantly looking at how do we do this better and and what are we really about? And we're about serving other people. That's, you know, we're about knowing Christ, growing deeper in our faith, and then and then how do we serve this community? So we were constantly asking, where does the community need support? Where do we need care? And so I think, I don't know if that was a redefinition, but it was, it was certainly a doubling down on things that we'd always said was important. And I think our congregation felt, I mean, that felt, I think they felt energized to want to do everything they could to be the church, to be the incarnation of Jesus in the world during this period of fear and anxiety and sickness and pandemic. And then, and then you add to that polarization. So we had a, you know, uh, such a polarizing year. We'd planned for that. We hadn't planned for the pandemic, but <laughs> Yeah. You know, we had a campaign in the fall, you know, really focused on, okay, we're going to be the church that says you're going to love your neighbor. We're going to be the church that's going to focus on how do we love Republicans and Democrats? How do we, <clears throat> how do we, how do we go about showing kindness to people that we disagree with and still having values that says, you know, we think this is right and this is wrong. We came through, you know, uh, George Floyd's death and, and, the, and the deaths and the things that happened leading up to that. And a Black Lives Matter is like, okay, it's time for us to say, you know, this this matters to us. What's going on when it comes to race? This matters to us. We're going to be, we're going to speak into this. We're going, to, you know, which we've done for years, but it was different this summer. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a there's been a lot of, at least in our congregation, I think a lot of maturing, a lot of growing, a lot of defining. This is who we are, and uh, and I think that's good. I think that's true. I hope for all of us as churches, you know, that we're. But what do you think? I mean, what's going on at your place? Are you are you rethinking who you are? Are you redefining yourselves? I always think of I always like the both and, not the either or. I don't think I I, I think of this year as a a a blip, but also a trending change. So I, I like 
stewardship campaign. You know, it's very different this year, different response, different way people interact. So you say, well, is that just a blip and next year's the same? No, I don't think that. But I also do think there is a blip aspect to this. It's just hard to be connected. You, you get people now that will unsubscribe because your email, I've unsubscribed from more things this past year than ever because it's just I'm done getting 2,700 emails a day. And I also think that what we've been through this past year, it's not just pandemic. Like you said, I mean, there's racial recalibration, racial tensions. The political stuff is yeah. just, you know, I, I think we've just lost our minds. I mean, just as a society where, you know, we talked about this with Will Willimon a couple of weeks ago. It's like the ubiquity of politics. Politics is everything. I mean, you can argue, I can argue with my wife about the best way to cook fish and it turns into a political argument. I mean, it's just in everything and still is. And people mm-hmm. seem to be okay with that. And even Christianity getting caught up in the Christian nationalism and Christian secularism. And, you know, it's just been for pastors, for churches to try to, we, we do the same focus and message at Chapelwood has been very important for me is you might be Republican, you might be Democrat, you might be conservative, you might be liberal, you might be traditionalist, you might be progressive. You know what? But the common thing that binds us together is our faith in Christ, our love for one another, and to, to, yep. to love God and to love neighbor as ourselves, to love each other, love your enemies. You know, we preached right. that last week to move away from right. hostility, a life of hostility. That's that toxic poison. And I just believe, and I will go down in flames, that the church <laughs> has to be the place that the world can look at and say, now that's different. You know, it's not an activist church. It's yeah. not a agenda driven. It's not political driven. It's not ideological driven, secular ideology. But like you said, there are things that are important, justice, racial equality, you know, there are things when you see injustice happen, you should be prophetically speak out against that. Yeah. But we don't, we don't do partisan politics, you right. know. And, and I think if we continue to be that kind of church, there's something beautiful in that. But we're in such a bad place in society that even Christians are hostile with each other. And I don't right. know how we get past that. Well, we were, so the polarization was already there, but then you spend a year not eating with people, not breaking bread with people, not sitting next to people in your Sunday school class who hold different views than you have, you know, you're apart and it becomes easier to become increasingly polarized. Then you add fear to it. And, you know, fear is a, you know, is a wonderful seedbed for polarization. (laughs) And, uh, and then you add, you know, and then you bring into it real problems, racial problems or other things. And suddenly that becomes a one more opportunity to divide us as opposed to bringing us together. And, And I think you're right. And part of why I'm a United Methodist is because I think in United Methodism, we have tried to find that way of holding people together around the center. And, uh, and so we are, you know, we're passionate about following Jesus. We're passionate about seeking to live out our faith in a way that transforms our society, spread scriptural holiness across the land, as Wesley talked about. And uh, we have always been a place where you could find people on both ends of the political spectrum. You know, now you don't find the farthest ends uh, in most United Methodist churches. You'll find some. But you're going to find a whole lot of people who are center right, center left, who are saying, you know what, I, right. I actually think I'm better because I'm with you. I, I, I think you have something I can learn from you. Mm-hmm. But as pastors, we've got to remind our people of this when we're so hyperpolarized. We've got to be able to say, you know what, we need those other people on the other side. They, you know, we don't have all the truth. We are better when we are listening to each other, learning from each other. And uh, yeah, that's part of what drew me to the United Methodist Church when I was in college is, you know, we're 
liberal conservatives and conservative liberals. We are, you know, we are uh, at resurrection. We are 49% Republican and 51% Democrat and independent. Um, you know, we are, I mean, it, it's, and to me, that's part of the joy of the thing. You know, when I, when I'm welcoming new members, I always remind them, people ask me, you know, I can't figure you out, Adam, are you conservative or liberal? And my answer is yes, of course. And they're like, no, which are you? Like, well, you know, I, I think those are both pretty good ideas to be conservative is to hold on to things that are, you know, they may not be in style or in vogue right now, but they're always going to be true. And you're holding on to those truths. You say, there are certain things that are just always going to be true. We're going to hold on to those things. And to be, you know, liberal is to be open to new ideas, to, to reform, to be generous of spirit. And we got to have both of those things. If we are, if we're conservative without being liberal, we're stuck. If we're liberal without being conservative, we're un, unmoored, but somehow together, you know, we're able to learn from each other. I, and I, I don't, I think I know you guys pretty well, but you know, resurrection, there are, there are things about which I'm way more conservative than, you know, than a lot of other folks. There are other things I'm going to be way more liberal. And most of the time I'm somewhere in between trying to, <laughs> trying to say, okay, come on, we can do this journey together. We're going to follow Jesus. And I love the example in the, among the disciples. And I think I first heard this from John Ortberg who heard it from somebody else. I think he told me, uh, but when Jesus chose his disciples and he had, uh, you know, he had Levi, the tax collector, and he had Simon, the zealot, you know, and the tax collectors work for the Romans and they're collaborators with the Romans. The zealots are trying to kill anybody who works with the Romans. I mean, this is like as far apart as you can get on the political spectrum in the first century. And Jesus called them both to be his disciples and made them eat with each other for three years and learn from him and, and follow him. And, and I think Jesus had, you know, he was onto something there that is important for us. So I think we are, I think the church is the best hope we have for healing our divides in our society. And I think the United Methodist Church is one of those best hopes because we bring together people on both sides of that aisle. I love when in uh, DC, when uh, George Bush and Hillary Clinton were both worshiping at Foundry United Methodist Church, mm. you know, Bush sat on the right, on the right side of the aisle and Hillary Clinton <laughs> sat on the left side of the aisle, but they were both United Methodists. That was a statement, you know, of who we are. I love that. It's it, what we, we were talking about recently, the difference between community and tribalism, you know, community is when you come together around mutual affection, mutual humanity, you know, mutual love yeah, yeah. for the, the created nature of the God image in, in the other person goes past the superficial, the good Samaritan helping the guy in the ditch, you know, and, and tribalism is not coming together, um, bonding together around mutual affection. You're banding together about the things that you mutually hate that you mutually exactly. are against. And so it's always polarizing. And so I think we just see way too much Christian tribalism or even just secular tribalism, mm -hmm. political tribalism. And what the church has to do is model that community, uh, like, which is exactly, I love the, the Matthew and the, and the Simon, you know, the fact that he forced them to eat. He probably made them sit next to each other too, <laughs> if I had to guess, if he was doing it right. Exactly. Exactly. Had to make them go buy groceries together. That would have been, it's a great. Send them out two by two. They, you guys are going together. That'd be a great show, a great comedy. Yeah. That's right. One of the things I love about, you know, Jesus call for us to love is when you think about agape, you know, as we know, it's not warm feelings for each other. It's about practicing kindness. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's how am I going to show love to you by my actions? And when I do that, you know, it changes things. I mean, the, you know, it changes how you feel about me, even though we're on a different side of an issue or a political divide. It changes how I feel about you when I practice love towards you, when I show kindness towards you. It actually softens my own heart. And uh, so we've been, you know, when we were doing this Love Your Neighbor campaign, we had 
thousands of uh, real estate signs. We did in, in the month of October, and it was planned way before COVID. But we thought, okay, when we're going into the election season, we know it's going to be hyper polarized. We knew there'd be election signs on every street corner. So we said, what if there were signs on every street corner that says "Love Your Neighbor"? What if all of our members were in T-shirts around everywhere they go, stickers on their cars or whatever? You know, the "Love Your Neighbor" thing. And, and you know, we preached into that. What does that look like? But uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. it is so obvious and yet how is anybody going to disagree with the idea since jesus said it was the second most important commandment shows up in moses i mean surely we got to agree with this and then and then it's not about whether i have warm affection for you it's about whether i'm going to practice kindness towards you mm-hmm. and uh and so we you know we had like i don't know five or six thousand of these signs in every street corner in kansas city just saying this is what it means to be a human being and for christians this is what it means to be a christian is that we are going to follow jesus jesus is going to call us if we're going to follow him to love our neighbor. And our neighbor includes our enemies. You said, John, you know, we're going to love our enemy. We're going to, we're going to practice kindness towards them. And you think about the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, you kindness, gentleness, all of these things are, you know, love and action. And, uh, and it's hard to argue against that. And I'll also say that for non-religious people, I, I was on a phone call the other day and there was about, uh, I think there was five or it was like 10, 12 guys in a, in a Friday lunch group. And uh, half of them, maybe more were non-religious people. And they were talking about how frustrated they were with what they saw Christians doing in the area of politics and how it just further turned them away from God and Christianity and, mm. and all that. But as we started talking, they said, you know, they want to know what, what we were doing as a church, and the kinds of things we were doing. And, and as I'm describing these things and you know, they're like, well, if I was going to go to a church, it'd be a church like that. Yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm interested in. And, and they weren't interested necessarily in my theology and my demonstrating how I had superior mm. theological arguments. They want to know, do you actually do you actually do what you say you, you guys do? Do you actually care about people? Do you love people? Do you go out of your way to sacrifice and selflessly serve the community? And when they heard about the things we were doing, they were like, yeah, that. That's that's yeah. the kind that's of right. religion we can believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because in the end of the day, I think our Christianity is to make us more human towards each other, not more spiritual right. and kind of odd. And I think that's somewhat what the we've done in modernity is we've kind of sequestered ourselves off and have become this kind of outside sect of oddness that then reflects back to the culture all the reasons why they're going to hell, which is like crazy. And when you think about kind of the bridge building that that is to be done via the spirit, via Wesleyan kind of theology that says, no, this is the world. Love it. I give yourself to it that they may know me. Right. And I think part of that is what we've lost and hopefully beginning at least to reclaim in some ways over the pandemic. Man, I love how you talked about being more human. Because that's something I I talk about frequently when I or in my mind, I think about frequently when I'm working on my sermons. My goal is every Sunday to send people out to be more authentically human. Yes. To actually be what God made them to yes. be. You know, to be authentically human means that we are, you know, we recognize our need and longing for God, but we also are going out and living justice and kindness yes. and you know, walking humbly with God and all those things we love in scripture, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. But I want people to be what God made them to be, mm. right? To be authentically human. And when we're that then we do find life is more meaningful. We do find greater joys. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, it's what Jesus said, when you lose your life for my sake, you find it. Mm-hmm. Like when you give up trying to find what everybody else says life is, and instead you look to him and you're, you become what you were made to be. Mm-hmm. You know, you are transformed into the image of God and people see that and they're drawn to that. Whereas they're turned off to a lot of what Christians and religion seems to stand for today. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've, I've noticed, like, um, 
at least at Chapelwood, is that some of the, the the pandemic has given us a chance in some ways to to pause. Some of the programs that we weren't able to invest in kind of have the the noise of that has kind of settled down, and it gave us a real clear sense of a highway into our community of need and what's happening. And so that the volume of that was obviously turned up, and because um, this community and the way John has led has, has, has attuned our ears to those things, we were able to respond. And I think that in some ways we've gotten closer to the mission of Christ in the world. Um, maybe not closer, but the, some of the, the, the noise of all the programs um, had to calm down because we just couldn't have folks on campus. And that opened up kind of these pathways of kind of loving the world in these very particular ways. Like the, I love the word practice that you're using, that love is not this kind of touchy-feely. It's actually a, a practice you cultivate you know it's like it's lived. you know yeah yeah. Um, yeah yeah i love that we've we've spent a lot of time this last year looking at partnerships mm-hmm. which we've always done but even more so how do we partner with people yeah. in our community yeah. to try to help kansas city we describe it as looking more like the kingdom of god we use uh you know we use the language of uh, uh which comes out of Harvard, and I'm trying to remember his name. It just slipped me for the moment. Um, Ron Heifetz, who uh, who talks about you know the world as it is and the world as it's supposed to be, and our goal is to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it's supposed to be. So Jesus talked about the world as it's supposed to be as the kingdom of God, and we're constantly looking for who can we work with to help make that happen. Yeah. And uh, I think about so you know we're doing uh, this is a tiny example of this, but we partner with Advent Health, which is one of our largest health systems in Kansas City. And, you know, we began looking at, again, what could we do to support them and first responders? And we provided meals for all the hospital workers at every hospital in Kansas City. We personal cards and notes we would send to them. We would show up with, you know, frozen custard at the door and people singing and holding up signs saying, you know, we're so grateful for you. I mean, all this kind of stuff. But so having done that with them, they were like, hey, as we're thinking about, you know, we're going to be administering vaccines and like, we don't have room to do this at the hospital. Could you guys, could we partner with you all to do this at the church. And so, you know, we'd already been doing hosting things for them and doing other things. And so, you know, we've, I think we're up to about 15,000 this weekend, I'll probably be 20,000 vaccines we've distributed so far. And so we have all of our volunteers and staff who are showing up there just to, and they have their love, their t-shirt signs on or shirts on just to care for people when they come in. And the hospital wanted to do this thing where they have a little intake card that says, you know, how am I, how are you feeling today? Are you, you know, do you want to talk to somebody? Are you, you in need of any kind of encouragement? And, and so, you know, we get these cards, you know, we find out who needs a little encouragement today. And so this is a chance for our congregational care ministers to sit down with people. And we got them 15 minutes after they get the shot. Cause you got to make yeah. sure they're okay before they leave. And I walked in there the other day and uh, it was the coolest thing. Somebody came up and got me and said, Pastor Adam, there's a, there's a guy over here. I think he could, I think it would be great if you could talk to him. So I walked over to the table. He's sitting there. And, you know, one of our volunteers, a nurse, is sitting there uh, with her computer, and she's getting all of his information. And and uh, and then Bill McClave is sitting next to him. And and uh, I could tell he'd been crying. He was in his 80s. His name was Buddy. And so I just sat down next to him. I said, hey, buddy, what's going on? Are you, you okay? And he said, uh, well, my wife died in December, and it's just so hard, you know. And I'm, I'm so glad I'm getting the vaccine, but at the same time, I've just it's just been so hard. And, you know, so we just sat there and we just listened to him for 15 minutes. And then we, you know, we, we prayed for him, you know, we just, just stopped everything in the middle of that and just spent time in prayer. And, and, uh, and, you know, I was so proud, Bill McClave, one of my members, I, I, I said to him, I said to buddy, Hey buddy, we've got a grief support group here at the church. You can join by zoom or by, you know, by any, if you have technology at all, or you can come here in person. And, 
well, I, I, you know, I live an hour away. He lives in Smithville, an hour away from where our church is. And we said, well, you know, you could join online if maybe you're, you know, we can help you do that. And, uh, and then Bill reaches out and says, hey, and here's a card for how you can get to our TV, our service on TV on Sunday. You know, we'd love to have you join us on TV. Do you, I, I said, do you go to church? He said, no, I, I, you know, I believe in God, but I haven't been to church in a long time. And so why don't you join us, you know, this Sunday? And anyway, so I left after, after praying with him, I left. And then uh, I got a message that week that when he was leaving, he was scared to drive home. He was afraid to drive home. And, and uh, Bill said, well, can I follow you home? I'll just follow you all the way home. That way we can get your heart car home too. But so Bill drives an hour to take him to his house, stops and loves on him before he, you know, before he leaves and then drives an hour back. And to me, that was like one tiny little picture of a of hundred thousand things that our people have tried to do this last year to serve the community. And uh, I just, I think this has been an awesome year for the church. Yeah. You know, when, when churches have said, Hey, let's step into it. Let's lean into it. Let's do mm-hmm. it. And I think you're right. We didn't do as many programs that we had done. And we did a lot more serving people and yeah. loving people and yeah. helping them see Jesus through us and finding hope. And it's been exhilarating, actually, just an exhilarating year in the midst of the pain and adversity. And I know you guys have 100,000 stories you could tell just like that, mm-hmm. but it's been awesome. Yeah. You, uh, <clears throat> How many books have you written? I think it's like 5,423 books. No, I think it's 5,424. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, you had it. There's a new wrote, one. He wrote new, one this week. Oh, that's right. He, he just wrote one today. No, it was uh, you had a, a new one that came out in December um, called Words of Life, which was a book on the Ten Commandments. And I'm not all the way through it, but I was reading it. It was funny when I texted you. I thought, man, we could talk about the the the, the idols you know, thinking about all the idols we've had this past year. But what you just said made me think more about Mm. the chapter on Sabbath and wondering how this year, uh, this week, uh, we're doing uh, doors of hope in the, in the desert where in Hosea it says the valleys of trouble, God will turn them into doors of hope. And what is that move you make from captivity going through the wilderness and then you come out in freedom. We've been looking at these different themes from hostility to hospitality, you know, from, isolation or loneliness to wholeness. Mm -hmm. But this week we're talking about from fatigue to vitality and the wilderness that you have to go through is really learn how to really live and keep and remember the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic has been interesting because one of the things I've learned a long time ago is that just sitting and doing nothing is not always (laughs) Sabbath. Being locked in your home and not being able to go to work is not necessarily Sabbath. Talk a little bit about your thoughts since you're, you just had some time thinking about that. But I mean, what are your thoughts on Sabbath and really where people are now in the midst of still trying to integrate, figure out where they are, how they connect, all those sorts of things. How do you see that being something that people can really plug into as far as practicing and remembering and keeping Sabbath in these days? Yeah, I think that's really good. Uh, I'd start by just uh, saying, as I was writing the book on the Ten Commandments, you know, what I found, we often think of those as, uh, you know, their rules were not, you know, they're not ten suggestions, they're ten commandments, you know, and the kind of billboards you see sometimes. But what I love about them is, is to me, they look like the guard, guardrails and guideposts of a good and loving God who wants the best for his children. And when you read these, and then you read them in the light of Jesus, who always finds the, you know, what's on the backside of them, or he turns them on their head, and all of a sudden you realize they mean something you didn't, you know, you'd never thought of before. And I love how in the 10, you know, in the book I mentioned, the commandment to Sabbath, it's the first time 
that we know of in the history of the world where a religion or any society set aside a day for people to rest. Up to that point, you worked seven days a week. Now, if you were wealthy, you might have had time off and leisure. But in every other society, the slaves, the servants, the, you know, the workers, the, you know, whoever you were, you worked seven days a week. And God said, that's not how I made you. I made you to actually rest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that rest is recreation, right? So what recreates you? What restores you? And, you know, part of that should be so we're to honor the Sabbath or consider it weighty. We're to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. To keep it holy means it's dedicated to God. And so we, you know, somewhere in there is worship, prayer. It's, it's scripture reading and pondering, you know, the things of God and trying to connect with God. But it's also learning how to enjoy life. And I think, at least in my life, I feel like I was used to working 60, 65 hours a week for almost 30 years. I was used to having one day off a week. And, um, and my life had sort of gotten adapted to that. And what I didn't realize was everything I missed by not actually having time to play, time to be with my children, my grandchildren, time to walk, time to you know, be with my wife. I mean, she said, this year is the first time I felt like you, I had your whole attention at times. Mm -hmm. You know, I always felt like before you were thinking about other things while not, not all the time, but you were, you know, you were preoccupied Mm -hmm. and, and what I've tried to learn is how to live in the moment this year and how to enjoy and savor, you know, all of these experiences and things in my life. And I, it was, it has been, revolutionary. And I don't want to lose that, you know, as we're go, I don't want to go back to normal, yeah. what normal was. I want to, I want a new normal that includes, you know, the, the stuff that I have really enjoyed in, uh, in, you know, discovering this year. So I, I think Sabbath has taught us a different pace or the pandemic has taught us a different pace. We, we were used to going out to eat all the time. You know, we ate out way too much. It's interesting. Dinner's different when you're in a restaurant uh, with other people or even just, you know, just the two, just Levon and I in a restaurant versus when we're sitting around the dinner table with a fire in the fireplace and we're just talking about what happened in our day or yes. talking about life or whatever. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And I really like the difference. I like the, I like what Sabbath has meant to us. One of the things I think about, and I, I think if I remember right, you talked about some of the things that they limited in your, in your work, but there's like things that give you life. It's like if like people on Sabbath, they go out and they're gardening you know, it's not work so much as it's giving life. And the image I have is like, you know, fatigue and, and, and is engaging in life where you feel like you're always swimming upstream, you know, things that take stuff out of you. It takes, it just takes work. And I would even say taking a vacation, not necessarily, it doesn't really, I mean, that just, it's a pause button. I don't mm-hmm. know that, I mean, unless you're very intentional right. about your vacation or you're you know, getting away for spiritual purpose or whatever, you know, you still have the same you comes back, you know, changing your job or moving to a new city, what, wherever you go, there you are kind of thing. But it's how do we find and develop? I always learned from, um, oh, an old uh, rabbi that, you know, Sabbath was worship, rest, and delight. There had to be delight. And I always loved that. Yeah. Yeah. play delight where your soul dances that's right you know something something inside of you and, and that's when i think about okay you can never get rid of all the daily tasks in life you're always going to have an element where you swim up, upstream but can you have elements in your life where you do feel like you're swimming downstream yeah. Yeah. where there's things that are like 
working. Yep. Um, and the world's not going to give you that life-giving rhythm. Mm. You have to carve that out, which is why I think it's a commandment. You know, why and why wasn't it? Um, I think you, you talk about wasn't it there like a it's like if you don't keep this, like it was a death penalty, right? If you're not keeping the Sabbath. Right. Well, yeah, and not not in the Ten Commandments itself, but in the in, in the rest of the Torah, right? They yeah. kill people to death. Yeah. And uh, and part of the way I looked at that is, you know, that we look at it and say hey, that come on, God really had people kill people if they didn't keep the Sabbath. And so we can debate about how we how we read scripture, but but I think it, in some ways maybe it was a metaphor for this is what happens to you when you don't keep Sabbath. Yeah. When yeah. you don't keep Sabbath, you, things die. There's a part of you dies. Your relationships die. And ultimately, you're going to die early when you have not rested because your body has to have rest. It needs to have time for you to think, pray, uh, reimagine, dream, delight. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things are important. And without them, there is something to us that dies, I think. And, you know, you and I both, uh, the three of us, we all know people who have died uh, way too early. I think about Junius Dotson, who, who just passed away and whose funeral was down in Houston. And uh, Junius and I were friends and it, you know, it, it grieved me to lose him. He was 55. He was a year younger than I am. And this last few weeks, I mean, I lost my brother-in-law last week. We've, you know, I've got another death that happened just today of a friend. And part of what that tells you is, man, I don't know how long I'm going to be around, which I've always known that. I mean, I've done enough funerals for people who died, you know, left to go to work. They died of a heart attack that day. So, but to be able to go, you know, I have today and I don't want to, I don't want to lose today. Yeah. I want to actually make the most of today. And then, and then I do want to, you know, Levon and I talk about this. Uh, I'm a few years older than you, John, but I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm at 56. I'll be 57 this summer. I figure I got till 70 while I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident of 70, but even then I'm not sure, you know, I'm hoping I'm hoping I'm 90. I'm planning on a hundred, but, but I don't want to have, so I'm, my brother-in-law had passed away last weekend. I'm doing his funeral on uh, this Saturday. Hmm. Um, he was a union guy, worked hard, a uh, really good guy. And he lived for his vacations. And I mean, he lived for a lot of things, but you know, he, the thing that he most looked forward to is was vacations and retirement. And he's 64, almost 65 when he passes and he didn't get to enjoy all the things in his retirement. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we just got to go. Sabbath was meant, I think, to remind us. That's right. God wants you to have joy in your yeah, life. Yeah. God wants you to have rest. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to be renewed. God doesn't want you to be burned out. You know, it's a good commandment. That's a really good commandment. I also, also wonder if it's a, it's a we commandment as well, right? I think sometimes we've turned that into a commandment that's for your own interpersonal growth, but it's to really set up, I think about Abraham Joshua Heschel that really encourages that to be this com, this communal exercise that when people from the outside walk in, they're like, wait a minute, this is a fresh breath air, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and, and people are living differently. They are renewed differently collectively, right? Because they're living in these rhythms and they've adopted a whole other way of, of, of life's rhythm that's connecting them to something that's outside of themselves. You know, and I think that as, as a community, as we cultivate that, then as folks that are irreligious or nuns and duns walk in, they're like, wait a minute. 
there's a different algorithm that's happening here and it's it's based on joy and trust and vulnerability and all those things that that we cultivate in sabbath you know that a community now is cultivated as a part of its identity i think it's one of the weaknesses of the church the struggles because yeah you know you you can't even carve people can't even carve out christians anymore <laughs> time once a week to go and worship together it's like there's too many other things that you know, that I want to do. I want to play golf. I want to got to go to the soccer field or whatever else. And I remember Barbara Brown Taylor said years ago, um, you know, we really only believe in eight commandments, not 10. We gave up on the graven images, you know, 2000 years ago, years ago and the Sabbath. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just, we don't remember and keep the Sabbath, not in the way that I think God wants us to. And so I think that that hurts us as as a witness in a community. I don't. It's kind of hard because you know we're not the kind of pastors who hellfire and brimstone and guilt shame our people into you know you got to be in church on Sunday. But to try to have it an invitational way to say this is really this really is important for your rhythm of life um, to be grounded together in communal worship. There's something you know that works at a mystical level. Yeah that we don't even understand. Well, and it's interesting because researchers have, have dug into this to see, you know, what impact does it have on people who gather in worship uh, of really any faith community, but what, what impact does it have? And we find that blood pressure is lowered, overall health is increased, heart health is increased. Uh, yeah, anxiety is decreased, depression is decreased. Doesn't mean that church people don't also get depression, but overall, when you look at the statistics, it's better for us to come together to pray, to remember who we are, whose we are, to reflect upon what our life, you know, what really matters, to be with other people, to be reminded to love, to trust, to have faith. I mean, all of those things actually improve the quality of our lives. Yeah, and, and these are studies done by people who are not people of faith and just yeah. looking to see, does it really matter? Yeah. Also, I was doing a study this week. I'm preaching on, uh, we're preaching through the gospel of Mark for Lent. And I'm preaching on three stories in Mark 9 and 10 about children in Jesus. And, um, and I was looking at this study out of Harvard, uh, the THN School of Public Health, I think it is. And they did a study of like 5,000 uh, children. They followed them. They were 8 to 14-year-olds. They followed them for years to see if, uh, see if there was a difference between kids who didn't go to church and kids who did go to church every week. So they looked at every week or not at all. And, you know, what they found is that the kids who went every week had lower levels of depression. They were less inclined towards PTSD. They were, uh, they had a deeper sense of forgiveness. They had a deeper sense of purpose in life. They felt more satisfied with their life because their parents took them to church. Hmm. You know, I mean, and certainly you hope along with church is faith and, you know, trusting God and knowing God personally and all of this. But these, you know, this idea of Sabbath and actually using that as a, at least in part to worship together and grow together is better for children. It's better for teenagers. It's better for adults. It's better for senior adults when we have community and we take the time to worship. And I love my Jewish friends, uh, you know, who uh, Rabbi Art Nemetov is a good friend of mine and, and, you know, watching how seriously they take the Sabbath and, you know, sunset to sunset, Friday night to Saturday, and, and the excitement about the Sabbath, you know, it begins with worship and praise on Friday night. And just the sense of the, as you described it, John, the rhythm of life, when you have this rhythm of connecting with God, remembering who you are, remembering what it means to be human, resting, playing, eating, you know, all of that makes us happier, healthier, helps us be more 
you know, Matt, in your terms, authentically human. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, this has been great before I, before we let you go and honor your time, but, um, here we are three United Methodist <laughs> pastors. Sounds like a bad joke. No. Yeah. <laughs> three United Methodist pastors. And we've talked almost, almost an hour, maybe not quite. And we haven't talked one time about our denomination. <laughs> Isn't that refreshing? <laughs> Now you and I are. Yes. I think I think you and I are on a call tomorrow to to, to ruin it all and talk about it. But uh, <laughs> real quick before we go, and I ask, uh, I've been asking people. I'll ask Willem on this and and some others. Like, not so much the the the, the ins and outs, the details, the weeds. But what's your vision? What do you hope and dream for in the church that you love, the United Methodist Church? Yeah. So. I look forward to the time where we're not fighting anymore about human sexuality, where we've, where in the United Methodist Church, we've said, look, there's room for people to interpret scripture differently here, but we're going to love and welcome everybody in, into our churches, which I think everybody wants to do, whether they're traditionalist or progressive, everybody wants to welcome everybody. But, but where we've resolved this, because some people have said, we can't stay in this church anymore. If you're going to make room for progressives or even centrists who are going to, you know, officiate at weddings or whatever. So I look forward to not fighting about it. I look forward to every four years at general conference that so we're talking about how are we going to change the world Come and not who's going to you know, get the upper hand on the debate about human sexuality. I look forward to being in a church where people want to be there and they're not kind of looking for a way to, to get out. And I don't mean anything bad about the people who want to leave. I really, I hope that God blesses them and that they, you know, create a great denomination. And, but I'm pretty proud of who we are as United Methodists. Yeah. I'm proud of the fact that we're a church that that, in, that integrates the head and the heart and calls people to live out their faith with their hands. I'm proud of the fact that we have 121 colleges and universities across this country because we believe education is not antithetical to the Christian faith, but is consistent with it. I, I'm proud of the fact that we have hospitals across the country who say that we should be in the business of, of bringing healing in the name of Jesus. I'm really proud of all the inner city missions and ministries we do in every city in the, you know, every major city in the country has United Methodists have gone in to live out their faith by transforming the community in the world. I'm proud that we ask the questions like, what does it mean to be a Christian in the light of George Floyd's death or in the light of children at the border in the, in, in Brownsville and other places, yes. or what does it mean to be a Christian when people are hungry during a pandemic or how can we be the hands and feet of Jesus? And I, I think every Christian asks that and all denominations do. I just, those are some of the things I love about being United Methodist. I love the fact that in United Methodist church that we value scripture. We have a high view of scripture. And at the same time, we recognize it was written by human beings who were inspired by the spirit and they lived in a particular time and place. And so they saw things through their lens of their time and place. And so we can ask questions about that and, uh, and, and wonder, you know, as we did in the 1700s, whether slavery was really God's will, even though it shows up 700 times in the Bible, or whether, you know, women keeping silent in the church really meant that women shouldn't be pastors of churches. We, we were able to ask questions about those things, even though the Bible said clearly certain things because we recognize both the Holy Spirit's work in, in inspiring scripture and the fact that human beings were the recipients of that inspiration and that they heard God's spirit speaking in the light of their times and what they could know. And so there's room for us. I mean, that's how I, that's why I became a United Methodist was because there was room to ask questions. Yes. And I had a lot of questions and in my Assembly of God church that I went to in college, I was told not to ask questions. And when I came to the United Methodist Church, I was told God gave us a brain for a reason. And, uh, and didn't want us to check our brain at the door. And so this idea of being passionate about evangelism and reaching people for Christ, I eat, sleep, drink, and breathe that. And I want the United Methodist Church in the future mm -hmm. 
to be fully engaged in trying to reach as many non-religious and nominally religious people as possible. That's what Wesley did. And, and there are more and more non-religious and nominally religious people who will never come to faith in a fundamentalist church or a conservative evangelical church, but will come to faith in a vibrant United Methodist church like yours. And I want us to be, I want our entire denomination to be filled with churches like that. And if it's 15% fewer churches than we have today, that's okay with me. If we can, if we can, you know, be the church that's going to be reaching out to our kids' generation and our grandchildren's generation. Mm. And I know I'm going on and on about this, but I'm going to just say one last thing. I think about my children and the kind of church that they're going to be a part of. They're going to be a part of a church that, that invites them to think, to use their brains. They're going to be a part of a church that's going to welcome all their friends, whether they're gay or straight. They're going to be a part of a church that is going to uh, roll up their sleeves and say it's not just about navel gazing and, and falling in love with Jesus. It's about falling in love with Jesus, then going out into the world and serving as his hands and voice and seeing where there's hurt and brokenness and seeking to bring healing. That's the kind of church I'm excited about. That's, I think, who we are as United Methodists. And again, I wish, I, I hate to see anybody leave our denomination and I hate to see the church split. I really hate that. But, and I love a lot of the, you know, the people that I know who are leaving. I love them. I hate to see them go, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to pastor a church that's going to tell people some of the things that I'd be required to say if I was going with the new denomination. And I'm pretty proud of who we've been. We, we have a lot of room to grow We're, as a denomination. We, we blow it all the time. We got all kinds of ways we've you know, missed the mark and, the, and need to be revived and reformed and renewed. But I believe in the church and I believe in the United Methodist Church. Not that it's the best church out there. We're not, we're not the only ones going to heaven. God knows we got a big mess of stuff in our own, you know, in our own denomination, but, but we're the right church for a lot of people. And if we could remember our message, I remember Lovett Williams once said in a, in a uh, sermon, I've never forgotten this. He says, you know, we have an amazing message as United Methodists. We have an awesome message. We have a message that'll speak to, you know, millions of people around the world if we could only remember it, mm. but we got to remember it. And, you know, I, I think that's what I want to devote my, the rest of my life to as a, United Methodist pastor in the denomination. I want to devote my life to reaching people for Christ, for turning our church inside out and sending them out in the community to help the community look like the kingdom of God. But in my work within the United Methodist Church, as an elder of the United Methodist Church, I want to help our church remember who we are. Yeah. And I want us to be the, I want to, because I think we may be one of the greatest hopes for reaching a whole new generation of people for Christ. Yes. If we could remember who we are and go start new churches for that generation and raise up new young people to be pastors. And, and, and I, I believe in that church. Amen. That's so. a good word. I love that. Amen. And that's, you know, because sometimes when you talk about our denomination, it only gets to the negative and the dismay and the, you know. And, but, I, I mean, I, I just think, I think you're right, and it's inspiring for us to continue to cast a vision for not only what we want to be, but for who we are, to remind yeah. people who we are yeah. and how we do what we do. I mean, I love yeah. the United Methodist Church, um, been in it mm. since I was, you know, a baby. Um, but then as I've gone in and out and, and wrestled with it, you know, John Wesley's theology, our history as a uniquely American experiment. Like you said, we haven't done everything right. We've confronted our own demons and had to deal with that. But I, I think that we're in a, in a good place to be able to reach the world, to reach our culture yeah. If we can, like you said, if we can remember who we are, that's, that's important. That's a good word. Man, I appreciate well, you. Hey, Thanks, I appreciate Adam. you, John. Matt, too. And Matt's good to get to know you better today. Me and too. Me too. John, I've appreciated your heart. I've appreciated the things you've written. I appreciate your, 
your passion and your to me your picture a picture of the best of what it means to be united methodist so Amen. thank you for being my friend and for inviting me to be on your program well, today thank you i'll venmo you that money for saying that i'll just <laughs> i'll send you that and i guess i'll see you tomorrow all right brother all right, hey thanks, enjoy guys. your time Appreciate out by the lake find some sabbath all right so blessings i'm going to give you one last glimpse here the sun's kind of come out so oh, so here man. we go look at this uh, it's a great i'm so I, my house is two houses over, and I just sit at the lower level, and I look out onto this, and it's just a great place so to you remember. do know right now you're causing me to go against Covet. the very book that you wrote. The I'm coveting. coveting my neighbor's lake. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Sorry about love that. you, and I'll talk to you <laughs> soon. Take care, Adam. Sounds good. Talk. Bye. Um, so coming up yeah, over the next couple of weeks, we've got some great guests Um Cynthia Harvey, Bishop Cynthia Harvey, is the president of the Council of Bishops for the United Methodist Church right now. So, And came out of Memorial Drive Methodist. And came out of Boom. Memorial Drive United Methodist Church mm-hmm. and served in this conference in She's Houston. She's a homegirl. She is. And so that's going to be a good conversation. We'll talk, we'll talk some about denominational stuff, but really I'm interested in talking with her the same as with Adam Hamilton. It's like, what's the vision for the church as we look to the future? Yeah. And as a bishop... She's connected not just with Louisiana, where she is the residing resident bishop, but the, all of the United States and bishops from all over the world, yeah. Africa, the Philippines, and Europe. So I think it'll be a really exciting conversation. And then we have also have coming up uh, Dory Jones. Dory is a mental health professional. I, I got to connect with Dory when I was in St. Simons Island, Georgia. Huh. Dory used to teach at what's called Fletsy which is the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Brunswick, Georgia. That's where all of the Capitol Police, federal law enforcement officers go to get trained, and it's where they teach the Secret Service. They have a driving track out there. You can go drive on all of the the aggressive terrorist, you know, anti-terrorist driving tactics. Ah. And they're blowing stuff up out there all the time. But anyway, Dory... It's really, it's a great... Back to Dory. It's a great place to go visit. But Dory, Dory is amazing because she's a mental health professional, but she specifically deals with people who are first responders, law enforcement, frontline personnel with the kind of trauma that they have to deal with. So I thought, wow, what better person... To not only talk with us about helping us, <laughs> it's always it's about, gonna, I always want to have guests that's like, It's going to be couples me? therapy again. <laughs> like John when we had Matt. Robert Hilliker, it's like, this is my therapy right. session. But I think she can bring a lot to a lot of us that are not only dealing Absolutely. with the stresses that we find, the trauma, yeah, yeah. but how we deal with mm-hmm. people that are dealing with their trauma mm-hmm. and how that interacts with us as well. Yeah. And then we have Mark. Mark Lapperton will be coming the week after that, who is the president of Fuller Seminary and is kind of involved in really helping uh, reimagine that institution uh, based on both kind of the changing landscape of Christianity and also just the pandemic and all of those kinds of things. And I found him in my time at Fuller to be a really excellent leader, thinker, and has a deep soul. Good. Well, I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Have Mercy.